Tom, do I want this on my lapel? Uh, I don't think it's No? Okay. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a, a pleasure to be back preaching with you. Uh, let's take a look at Psalm 92 together. Psalm 92 in your Bibles. And I will be reading from a slightly different version than you. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, some of you may have that. I know the Pew Bibles are New King James. I don't think there are significant translational differences. So hopefully everybody's day isn't ruined by that. Hear God's word, Psalm 92. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know this. The fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Psalm 92 uh, comes on the heels of uh, Psalm 90 and 91. It's a funny thing about the Psalms is they're in order by number. Uh, Psalm 90 begins book four, the fourth of five books of the book of Psalms. And it focuses, uh, it's, it's a good New Year's psalm because it calls us to... Think about our days, and it's a prayer that the Lord would help us uh, to make good use of them and that he would establish the work of our hands as we go about the business that he's given us to do. Psalm 91 is kind of a hard left turn, and it's classically interpreted as a psalm of spiritual warfare, as the psalmist uh, calls on uh, or celebrates the shelter that he has in the presence of God Most High. And this has been interpreted uh, throughout the ages, not only of Christianity, but of Judaism before, uh, as a psalm about dealing with temptation and about dealing with uh, spiritual forces that would assail the Christian. And Psalm 92 seems to take a hard right turn, or left turn, another left if you like, seems to take another hard turn as we turn into this beautiful psalm of praise and thanks and celebration. One of the things that's unique about Psalm 92 is the little title that's given over the top of it. It says, a psalm, a song of the Sabbath, or a song for the Sabbath. And this is the only psalm 
that's titled this way. It's the only psalm that has Sabbath in the title that's particularly connected to the Sabbath day, which might strike us as a little strange because the Sabbath is a really big part of the Old Testament. It's uh, the, all of the psalms were presumably sung on the Sabbath from time to time. And so you'd think that there would be a little bit more of an organic connection, but there's, this is the only one that explicitly connects the psalm with the Sabbath. And there's a couple reasons for that. And the first is very straightforward, and that is that the Sabbath is to be a day of joy. And this is a psalm of joy. This is a psalm of celebration uh, over God and his care for his people. Uh, there's another element that we'll get to in a little bit. But even though it's a, a really good psalm for the Old Testament Sabbath, for the Christian Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, uh, that's what God ordains at creation. He tells us, people to celebrate it all through the Old Testament. It's even better for the Christian Sabbath, the first day of the week, the day that we celebrate the triumph of Jesus over sin, the devil, and death, the day that we celebrate the resurrection. And we'll look at that more in a little while. What I want to do now is just walk through the psalm. We're going to not going to do verse by verse, but we're going to take a chunk at a time and look at some of the different aspects of this psalm. And uh, maybe at the end there will be a little practical stuff as well. But for the most part, I just want to unpack it and see how it calls our attention to God's work in our lives. And above all, God's work in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. All right, so verses 1 through 4. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. It's good to give thanks to the Lord. Why? Why is it particularly good to give thanks to the Lord? Well, we're in church, right? Everybody should have a handy, uh, proper answer for that. Uh, But the psalm actually gives us the reasons why it is good to give thanks to the Lord. He says in verse 4, you have made me glad by your work. At the work of your hands, I sing for joy. So he's rejoicing and he's calling us to rejoice at the work of God. That's what we're supposed to be focused on. That's why it's good to give thanks to the Lord. And that actually, right out of the box, is a very practical thing. Because it actually teaches us that we want to live in such a way That any blessing or success that we experience is clearly God's work, not things that we've accomplished by our cleverness or our hard work. Now, you can find places in the book of Psalms, you can find places in the scriptures where it celebrates the strength that God gives to human beings to do the work that he's given them and the intelligence that that he gives them. You can think of the guys who built the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. There's a celebration of the gifts that God gives people to do their work. But here, the focus, we want the focus for the most part to be on God and his work. And the straightest route to that, the straightest route to living a life that is focused on the work of God, is to pray. It's to pray for all kinds of stuff. It's to pray like crazy. Well, why is that? God likes to answer prayer. And the blessings that God pours out on us are meant to foster and strengthen our relationship with him. And if we pray for the things 
that we want and need, if we pray for the things that are on our minds that are bothering us, if we pray for the things that we're hoping for, if we pray for the little petty things like, I lost my keys and I need to go somewhere in five minutes, then what we do is we see the things that when they do come to us, when God answers those prayers, we see them clearly for what they are, that they're his gifts. And when we see them as his gifts, we thank and praise him for his works. He gets the glory. So, good Presbyterians, what's man's chief end? Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The straightest route to glorifying God is praying to him for the things that we need and then giving thanks to him when he answers those prayers. It's not rocket science, thankfully. Presbyterians sometimes think it's rocket science, but it's not. It's very straightforward. We pray for things and we give thanks to the Lord when he answers our prayers. He gets the glory. In verse 2, we read, it's good to declare your steadfast love. And the word is here, to, here is chesed, your loving kindness, it may be in your Bibles. It's good to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness, uh, your MF, uh, by night. And these are both really important. These are huge characteristics of God's in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament. And we need both of these. We need his steadfast love, his loving kindness, and his faithfulness, because A God who is true and faithful, but doesn't particularly love us, does us no good. In fact, a God who is true and faithful and doesn't love us is really bad news. On the other hand, a God who loves us, but isn't true and faithful, can do us no good. He's not truly God. But God is a God of unchanging character who loves us because he has chosen to love us and he will never stop. And therefore, we see his glory, we ask him to take care of us, and we praise him when he does. We praise him for his works. Moving on into verses 5 through 9. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know this. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. So here God's works are celebrated, but he's also very directly contrasted with his enemies. This is a really important thing here. God is praised for his thoughts, his wisdom, and for his works. And then we get, I think it's the only psalm that actually talks about stupid people. So in the sermon, I get to talk about stupid people. What are the biblical features of being stupid? Well, by definition, those, uh, the, the stupid in this psalm are those who do not understand the truth that is laid out here. Okay? And what's the truth that's laid out here? First, that the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish. The wicked, those who do what is wrong, and we'll get into what that means in a, in a couple of minutes... Those who do wrong sprout like grass. They come up in a day. And you have to think here, they literally have their day in the sun. You have to think here, if you've ever been to uh, the desert in the western United States or probably other parts of the world, ancient Israel certainly, the Negev Desert. uh, If you think about a desert foliage that blooms the day after there's a rainfall, right? Here in the northeast, we're used to just 
kind of a lot of moisture all the time, and we're hoping it doesn't destroy the basement. And, you know, you kind of take the green stuff for granted. If you're in the desert, you don't take the green stuff for granted because it comes in a day and it's gone almost as quickly. The rain falls, the, the grass uh, grows up in a day or two. It's good pasture for a little while, and then it's gone. And that's the picture here of the wicked sprouting like grass. And when we look around at the world, when we look at human life, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to realize that an awful lot of what is new and shiny in general just doesn't last. How many of you got an iPhone in 2007? Nobody else got an iPhone. I don't believe you. You're a bunch of liars. This is Cambridge, Massachusetts. Early adopters. Well, you can't use that. You can't even use the one you bought three, four years ago anymore. They're not even supported. Uh, Ideas come and go. Ideas that are sometimes widely held, sometimes almost universally held, come and go. Spontaneous generation is no longer a thing. Geocentrism. Aristotelian physics, the miasma theory of disease. It's just fun to say miasma. It's not fun to get a disease from a miasma, but it's fun to say. National socialism. There's a time and a place where everybody thought, this is it, guys, we figured it out. Leninism, a dozen heresies I could name. There are churches that come and go. Not just the little ones that you know seem to open up in a storefront and they're gone in a year or two, they've moved somewhere else, but the big ones that seem like juggernauts, Mars Hill in Seattle, if you've listened to that podcast, Hillsong in New York, businesses that seem to be the great wave of the future come and go, FTX, those letters, oh, there's some people squirming, oh, don't remind me of that, SVB, too soon, sorry, so things come and go. But there's not just, this is not just sort of an observation on, well, you know, life is short. There's actually a moral dimension to it. And it says that they are destroyed forever and ever in verse 7. There's a general teaching that what seems to be eternal or what seems like it will last for a long time passes away. But there's a particular teaching that those who do evil are destroyed. What does it mean to do evil? Well, actually, here in this psalm, the best way to learn about what it means to do evil, what it means to be an evildoer, is actually to contrast it with what God does. And at the end of the psalm, we read what God does. We read that God is one who does, uh, in whom there is no unrighteousness. Now, righteousness is another one of those church words that we use a lot and we don't necessarily have a good definition for so if you use righteousness in everyday language, if you're talking with your coworkers and you describe someone as righteous, they're probably not going to realize that that's a positive thing. Because for us, in everyday speech, if anybody ever thinks of the word righteous, they think of it as short for self-righteous and self-righteousness. They don't think of righteousness as actually a real thing. And we as Christians don't necessarily have a clear idea of what righteousness and therefore unrighteousness are. Let me give you three aspects of unrighteousness. And these are just the flip sides of three aspects of righteousness. And these are, by the way, are if you read old theologians, they'll, they'll pick these apart much more carefully than we do today. First of all, there's 
uh, righteousness as a particular righteousness. Righteousness where we meet our obligations, we feed our own children, we pay our own debts, we care for our own families. And therefore, there's a particular unrighteousness where people don't meet their obligations. They don't pay the debts that they owe. They don't care for their own families. In some ways, this is kind of the lowest common denominator righteousness. Uh, This is something Paul brings up in, in 1 Timothy. If someone does not care for his own people, and particularly those in his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In other words, Paul is saying basic righteousness is you take care of your own business and you take care of your own people. But then it goes from there, the idea of righteousness goes from there to another level. And this is what the ancients called general justice or general righteousness, where you are generous. You can think about Psalm 112. Uh, Look at it on your own time. I'm preaching 92 right now. Uh, Righteousness means uh, generosity. It means seeking the good of others, not just yourself or your family. And therefore, the, the flip side of that, a general unrighteousness, those who do evil are by implication stingy. They don't give away their money. They don't lend freely to those who are in need. Uh, They seek only the good of their own families and of themselves. The Greek word for this was idiotai, idiots. They're private people. They're private people who are only focused on themselves. But then the third level of justice is particularly for those who are in positions of authority or judgment. And that, that idea of justice uh, is just judgment, just judgment. And I'll just say what injustice in judgment looks like. It means uh, perverting justice, judging unjustly for the sake of a bribe or for personal advantage or for popular opinion. Someone who is judging justly judges in the fear of God, sometimes to their own disadvantage. And as one Old Testament scholar put it, uh, the righteous man disadvantages himself in order to advantage the community. The unrighteous man disadvantages the community in order to advantage himself. These are the people who seem like they're going to do great in the short term. They seem unstoppable in the short term. Their Their stock valuation is through the roof. They're rising in the company. They're getting all the awards, all the prestige. Nothing seems to be standing in their way. And yet, the psalmist says, they grow up like grass in a day and they flourish and die just as quickly. Now, knowing that God is not like his enemies, knowing that God is fundamentally different from his enemies should guard us against a heresy and a sin. Uh, It should guard us against all kinds of heresies and sins, but I'll just point out one of each. The heresy is actually a very ancient one. It's interesting that in the Sunday school class this morning, uh, uh, Patrick Mangan was teaching about Zoroastrianism uh, contrasted with the portrayal of uh, Hebrew religion in the book of Haggai. I won't rehash that for you, but it's connected to this. And the ancient heresy or religion was actually known as Manichaeism, and it came out of the same place. And Manichaeism, which, by the way, was Augustine's religious background before he came to faith in Christ, was a belief system that looked at good and evil as locked in an eternal battle. 
as two sides of the same coin, as the two teams that are at a war with each other that will never come to an end. There's a little bit of this in the Star Wars universe, right? With a dark, well, I'm not joking. It's the dark side and the light side of the force. Did I get that right, dark and light? Okay, what, it's, what's the joke? It's like duct tape. There's a dark side and a light side and it holds the universe together. Um, that's Manichaeism. Well, God is not a Manichaean God who's locked in an eternal struggle with evil. It's not like Satan and God are the two choices you have. They may, uh, Satan may present himself as God's opposite number. He is not. Uh, God is not merely one side of the coin locked in battle with evil forever. God is reality. He is the source of reality. He is reality itself. Evil is unreality. It's a failure without an existence of its own. And there's a whole bunch more we could say about that, but I'll stop there. That's one, the heresy to avoid is Manichaeism. The sin to avoid is lying, falsehood, or duplicity of any kind, even in the service of what you think is right. Now, this comes up from time to time in the Christian world, where people will say, you know what? The other team, whoever you identify the other team as, the other team is so bad, they're so bad, that we should stop at nothing in order to defeat them. They will stop at nothing in order to defeat us. We should stop at nothing in order to defeat them. And you will even find Christians justifying violence and lies so that our team, however you identify that, will win. James, it's interesting that James came up this morning. This was in the sermon. We didn't collaborate. It's just the Bible, man. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Or actually, King James is a little nicer. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We cannot do evil that good may come. God is not worried about winning the battle. He will most definitely win the battle. And in our lives, what we need to do is seek to exalt him and imitate him by the way that we speak and act. Verses 10 and 11. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have, poured fresh over, you have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. So by contrast, those who practice trust in God uh, by doing what God does, by practicing righteousness... Not, un, not unrighteousness for the righteous team, but by practicing righteousness, win. Those who do what God does and therefore express a trust in God to make things right, win in the long term. Verse 10, you have exalted my horn, uh, my horn like that of the wild ox. There's not a whole bunch of references uh, to this uh, exalting the horn uh, in the Old Testament, but there are a few, and one that jumped out was from Numbers chapter 23, where it was a song, a song of praise. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. This is an image of power, of honor, of glory, of dignity, of victory. You have poured over me fresh oil. In other words, you've anointed me. And here we should be thinking of Christ, whose title, Christ, means the anointed one. Psalm 91 actually 
uh, should point us to this as well that came just before 92. Psalm 91, again, is a picture of spiritual warfare, specifically warfare against the devil's work of temptation. The Christ, the anointed one of God, wins by resisting temptation to do evil and persevering in righteousness. How is it that Jesus wins? It is by doing what is right, despite every temptation to go in another direction and save himself. Psalm 92, then, is the response of God to, this, uh, to his resisting temptation. Victory over his enemies, crushing the head of the serpent. Remember, whenever we read the Bible, we can read it in one of fundamentally two ways. And in a way, they're both right, but one of them is righter than the other. The one that's righter is the Bible is about Jesus And that means even the Psalms, as we read them and as we sing them, we are singing first and foremost words of Christ, about Christ, showing us Christ. And then because we are in Christ, connected to him by the power of the Spirit through salvation, they are also about us. But number one, as we read and sing Psalm 91, 92, any psalm, we are looking at a picture of Christ. And when we read Psalm 92, we are seeing not just a song for the Sabbath, we are seeing Jesus' song for the Sabbath. Jesus is given victory over his enemies, crushing the head of the serpent. The, The wicked rise up before him like grass. They're gone. Pontius Pilate is gone. Herod is gone. The Pharisees and those who are attacking Jesus at every turn They are gone. He remains on the throne. Think about Psalm 45. We sang a selection from earlier, but Psalm 45, verse 7. The first part of Psalm 45 is clearly about the king. The second part is about his bride. That's the part we sang. Psalm 45, verse 7 is quoted in Hebrews 1, 9 of Jesus. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Why is Jesus sitting on the throne? It is because he did what God the Father called him to do. He resisted temptation and did what was right. Verse 11. My eyes have seen my enemies. My ears have heard of my evil assailants. And I think both the ESV... Uh, which I read from, and the Psalter interpret too much. They say a bit more than this. They say, my eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Those words are not actually in there. It just says, my eyes have seen my enemies. In two different words, seen and I saw and heard my enemies. And implied is because I caught them before they could come at me, I defeated them. So our old Psalter says something like, I've seen, uh, what is it? I won't try to quote it from memory because I'll get it wrong. Uh, But think of this in the context of Christ's life. He saw and heard his enemies. Think about all the different times in Matthew or in Mark where Jesus knows the thoughts of those who are coming at him. Or in the Gospel of John. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man For he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knows his enemies. He also knows his friends better than they know themselves. The Lord Jesus knows his enemies, knows their minds, 
knows, knows the hearts of mankind. He was not taken by surprise or against his will. But when the Father commanded him and for the life of the world, he let himself be put to death for the sake of our transgressions. The Sabbath, the Lord's Day, is not a day for fasting and somber reflection, but for joy. Those who seemed to triumph that night, and Jesus says to to his enemies, this is your hour, and the power of darkness in Luke 22. Those who seemed like they were going to win, those who were flourishing right at that moment, did not win. Their triumph turned into mourning. Because Jesus, who died and was raised again to light and immortality and joy on the third day. Early Christians taught and practiced a new Sabbath. That was the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. And interestingly, when they talked about it, and you can find some ancient church fathers talking about it at various times in history. Interestingly, when they talked about it, they didn't talk about it as the first day. They called it the eighth day. They called it the eighth day. The seventh day was rest that crowned a week of work. The eighth day was a crown on a crown. The culmination of the old and the beginning of something new at the same time. That's why in the Presbyterian tradition, we take the Lord's Day so seriously. We take it as God's appointed Sabbath, a blessing in keeping with the fourth commandment. Let me just say, this is a, a, I'll make this really short. If you are wondering how we are called to keep the Sabbath, I'll give you four words, and you can unpack them at your leisure. The first is worship. Now, I'm preaching to the choir, right? You, can, you made it to worship. Good job, everybody. Come to evening worship if you can. Sometimes you can't do it. Sometimes you can't get to morning worship. Stuff happens. But worship. Make a priority out of worship. Second, feasting. Make it a day of joy and celebration. Eat a better meal than usual. If you can, eat it with other people. Rest. If you have any say in the matter, take the Lord's Day as a day of rest. And finally, show mercy, which is to say, share that Sabbath rest with those who need it. Let me continue. Verse 12. Through 15. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. After the psalmist says that he himself has triumphed, he goes on to declare that this is true of everyone who trusts in God. So it's not just about Jesus, and it's not just about the ancient psalmist, whoever that is, we don't know, but it's true about us as well. Rather than flourishing like grass, as it was talked about earlier in the psalm, the righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Tall and strong and fruitful and shade-giving and green and beautiful. And this is the arc of a righteous life. This is a description of a blessed life. Now, again, if we're going to backtrack to the last few psalms, Psalm 90, we humble ourselves before the Lord and ask Him to establish the work of our hands. 
Psalm 91, we take refuge in the presence of God and in his strength make war on temptation and sin. Psalm 92, we ignore the quick fix. We forego the fast growth, the exciting trend, the rush of pleasure. When others go all in on a trend, we stand back. And when others are panicking, we're patient. We live a life of doing what is right and patiently waiting on the Lord. Now, I'm going to digress here for a minute because there's some cool little connections that I want to point out to in other parts of the scripture. And we'll come back to the flow here in a second. One is that palm tree, the righteous flourish like a palm tree. Palm tree is Tamar in Hebrew. Think of David and Jesus's ancestress Tamar. The Holy One of God flourishes like his great grandma. One of the three Old Testament women who is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, all of whom would have been condemned by the people of their day. Psalm 1, verse 3. Psalm 1, this beautiful picture of uh, the righteous man who's planted in the house of the Lord and flourishes. Uh, he, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. How much like Psalm 92. And... We should also think of when we read that they still bear fruit in old age, they're ever full of sap and green. We should think of Moses, who's described at the end of Deuteronomy as um, being 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed, and some overlap in language here, his vigor unabated. Guy was still going strong when the Lord decided it was time to close that chapter. And at the highest, highest level of reading this psalm, In any scripture, again, it is about Jesus. The righteous man of Psalm 1 and Psalm 92 is not just you and me, not just even David, but Jesus who flourishes for all eternity. You know, Jesus was around age 30, 30, 33 thereabouts, when he died and rose again and ascended into heaven. But in John's vision that Tom read at the beginning of the worship service, he has white hair. What's up with that? And not oxidative stress white hair. Okay? Why does he have white hair? The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. This is no weak old man. He is so terrifying and mighty that John falls down before him at his feet as though dead. And Jesus reaches down and says, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus flourishes not like grass after desert rain that's beautiful and lush today and it's gone tomorrow. Jesus flourishes like the palm. He is the wisdom of age and the strength of youth. He's the fruitfulness of the tree of life with the maturity of the tree of knowledge. He is the giver of life to man and woman, to girl and boy. He is no more, as we see him in Revelation, the young warrior who's doggedly facing death. But he is the king who has already passed through death and is alive forevermore. And a sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth. He is planted in the house of the Lord and he flourishes in the courts of our God. He still bears fruit. And you and I and countless others are some of that fruit. And he will continue 
to bear fruit, not only in old age, but throughout eternity. He is ever full of sap and green, both to praise God the Father and to receive praise with God the Father, to declare to us and to hear from us, the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Well, there's some application, I guess. By which I mean some more practical direction for how the Lord is calling us to live our lives. First of all, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, seek to do work that is long-lasting and strong, not gaudy and ephemeral. Ephemeral is a great word. It means of the day. It means belonging to a day. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And let me give you a hint. It's not necessarily what people think is long-lasting. People are immortal. C.S. Lewis says very nicely, you have never met a mere mortal. Every person you meet, every person in this room, every person in this city, is either going to flourish in the presence of God forever or perish in hell forever. You have never met a mere mortal. So what is worth spending your time on? Gold seems, it's nice and heavy, right? It's great stuff. Gold and presumably paper money, which is somehow related to it in ways that only economists understand. Gold flies away. It sprouts wings and departs. People are immortal. And going with that, admire and love what is well-founded and proven, not what is shiny and new. And going with that, read old books. Not just old books. C.S. Lewis lays down, is this third C.S. Lewis in the sermon? That's a lot. Sorry. But he lays down a nice rule. He says, for every new book you read, read at least one old one. There's a very practical reason for that, which is Books that are old and still read are probably better than all the crummy old books that nobody reads anymore. It just sorts it out for you pretty nicely. But read above all else. Read the book. Read the scriptures. So seek to do good work that is long-lasting and strong, not gaudy and ephemeral. Second, aim your life to flourish in old age. Now, that means a number of things. One thing it means is controlling youthful desires. Why should we control youthful desires? There's plenty of youthful desires, and they're not just the usual suspects, but love of wealth, love of fame, love of power, those are all youthful desires, relatively speaking. Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand our pleasures forevermore. There's a lot of good stuff in the world. Have you been to the spice store over in Inman Square? The world is amazing if you can make that stuff. Is this that place still around? It's still there? Good. Well, you all have an assignment now. The world is amazing if it can make that amount of spices, let alone all the other stuff that I guess is out there. But there is nothing in this world that compares to the pleasures that are at the right hand of God forevermore. So it means controlling your youthful desires. It also means holding on loosely 
to youthful ambitions. Ambition is not a bad thing. You should want to do big things. You should want to do hard things. Probably, if you're here and you weren't dragged here by your parents, you are in this area because you have some level of ambition. Ambition is not a bad thing. But hold on loosely to your ambitions. Uh, One of the most poignant, I think, passages in the Old Testament is Jeremiah 29, where uh, God has Jeremiah the prophet write a letter to the new exiles who are in Babylon. And he says, look, I know that the prophets you're talking to, most of them are saying, don't unpack your suitcases, guys. We're going back to Judah any day now. You are not going anywhere. You better settle in because I've sent you there. Then he says something wonderful at the end of this sort of put the brakes on uh, letter. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, shalom and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. And going along with aiming to flourish in old age, we are called to respect and care for the needs of those who are already in old age. And that means particularly your own grandparents and parents, as long as they live, see to those things. Thirdly, look ahead to the eighth day of your existence. What do I mean by that? In the Old Testament context, again, the Sabbath is at the end of the week, and this psalm celebrates God's goodness toward the end of an earthly life. It's an appropriate psalm for the Sabbath because the psalmist speaks from the Sabbath the seventh day, as it were, of his life. May God grant that we all end our earthly lives in strength and vigor and blessing like Moses. But we won't all end our lives that way. Often that's not the experience of the later days of our lives. We should count our days, right? As Psalm 90 says, but we won't all make it to 70 or 80. Maybe the sins of our youth will catch up with us. The hepatitis will kick in. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, Psalm 25 says, but maybe the Lord will choose to bring those things on you after all. Maybe your retirement calculator fails you and you just scrape by and your old age is not a very happy one and not a comfortable one. Maybe you will get sick and die. Our spirits may flourish, but our bodies may wear out And at a certain point, even our minds may stop serving us. What is on the other side at the end of our lives, whether they are healthy or not? Well, the psalm gives us a picture. Evildoers are destroyed forever and ever. Moses only looked at the promised land from Mount Nebo, but we're promised a place in the Lord's kingdom forever and ever. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. And if your trust is in Jesus Christ and not in your own wisdom and goodness, let alone your own strength, this is your future. Not the seventh day of life, which is mixed for the healthiest, strongest, wisest people. It's a mixed bag. But the eighth day of new life. Psalm 21, speaking of the Son. He asked life of you, and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. And finally, 
And above all, praise God. It is good to thank the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, how we desire the earthly blessings of this psalm. Blessings of flourishing not for a day, not springing up and then dying back down, but blessings of long life and fruitfulness and strength and sharp minds and strong bodies. But how much more we desire the real blessing, which is eternity in your courts, which is flourishing in your house forever and ever. And how sweet it is to see with John a vision of the risen Christ who is standing with the wisdom and strength of age and the vigor and strength of youth. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to pray. We pray that we would live seeking your glory by asking you for the things we need and praising and thanking you when we receive them so that we and all those around us can't help seeing that if our lives have anything good in them, it's because you've given them to us as gifts. But Lord, we pray so much more that you would teach us that aside from any earthly blessing, we are destined for an eternity in the presence of the living God. And we pray that that would inform the entire way that we structure our days, the decisions we make about careers, the way we speak to and raise our children, whom we marry, where we move, what we do, all of those things, Lord. Let us live them in the light of eternity. And above all, let us live them to the glory of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, and in whose name we pray. Amen.